Heavenly Father, uh, as we come to this scriptural passage this morning, uh, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Uh, May your spirit take this passage and speak to our hearts and minds and encourage us, helps us to see something of the greatness of Jesus and how that should then transform the way we live, we pray. Amen. In 2007, uh, Aaron Vered published a book entitled Tell a Friend... Uh, Word of mouth marketing, how small businesses can achieve big results. Uh, Word of mouth marketing is when ordinary people talk to other people about a company's business or its products. Uh, Vered says that uh, word of mouth marketing, or WOM for short, is one of the best forms of marketing. He says, and I quote, uh, WOM is one of the most important weapons in many businesses' marketing arsenal. Uh, A Gallup poll found that 45% of businesses in the United States rely solely on WOM marketing. Vered says that WOM marketing is becoming more and more effective in our culture. Uh, There are numerous reasons for this. Uh, Among others, there's the fact that we are now so connected through social media. Uh, Each of us as individuals can have a wide influence. Uh, There's also this trend in society uh, to trust authorities less and less. Uh, These days, people are more inclined to take advice from people they know and trust rather from authorities. So, uh, warm marketing is becoming increasingly significant. In fact, Vered argues that in our culture, warm is one of the most trusted media. Uh, Vered also talks about a practice of some companies, and it's a practice that he doesn't agree with. Uh, He thinks it's unethical, but apparently it still happens. It's a practice called shilling. Uh, The example of shilling is he talks about is this, and I quote, in shilling, businesses pay people to talk up their products in various places. For example, standing in line at the bank or a student center. Imagine that. I get paid to talk to people about products. So for example, I take my kids to soccer. Uh, During the game, I sidle up to another parent on the sideline. I say, hi, my name is James, and I chat for a while. And then I surreptitiously drop into the conversation. Do you know, I'm over 50. I don't look like it, do I? That my skin is so smooth and wrinkle-free. Do you want to know how I managed to look so young? It's because I use this Acme product. It's this anti-aging cream. You just drop it in. Shilling. As I say, uh, the book doesn't condone shilling. And indeed, the book goes on to explain how to get people talking about your businesses and products in a more ethical way. Uh, It's an interesting book, uh, and I reckon it's an interesting claim. Word-of-mouth marketing is the most trusted media. Uh, Is that your experience? Uh, I think it is for me. Uh, If somebody comes to me and recommends something from their own experience and I happen to need that as well, I'm far more likely to go and buy the product from the place they bought it. So, uh, word of mouth. It is very, very effective and powerful. Now then, uh, last week uh, we looked at the first part of John's Gospel. Uh, It's what's called the prologue, this introductory section. And we saw that the author, the Apostle John, 
uh, talks about another John, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, The Apostle John told us that John the Baptist came with a special job. Uh, He was a witness to testify about Jesus. Uh, Why? So that people would put their faith in Jesus, so that people would be ready for the King when he came. And now as we move into this first section of this Gospel, the camera lens focuses in on the ministry of John the Baptist, uh, the one who testifies about Jesus. Now, we're going to divide our passage today into two main sections. Uh, Firstly, uh, the content of John the Baptist's testimony, which is all about the greatness of Jesus. And then the impact of John the Baptist's testimony uh, following Jesus. And then we're going to think about how this applies to us today. So the content of John's testimony, the greatness of Jesus. If we look more closely at what John said, we see that he paints this amazing portrait of Jesus and his true identity and indeed his greatness. Uh, Firstly, we see that Jesus is the Lord who leads his people to their heavenly home. Jesus is the Lord who leads his people to their heavenly home. Uh, It's very obvious, isn't it, from the text that uh, John has caused quite a stir. Uh, He's made quite a name for himself. Uh, He's come to the attention of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And they want to know who on earth he is and what he's doing. And so uh, they send this delegation to find out uh, and get answers. They ask him a number of questions. And firstly, they find out who he isn't. Uh, John the Baptist says, look, I'm not the Christ, the promised king. Uh, He also says... I'm not the prophet Elijah returning from heaven. Uh, He also says, nor am I the prophet that was promised by Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, Look again at verse 19. Uh, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So, the delegation now know who he isn't, but that's not much good to them. Uh, They want to know who he is, and so they ask again. And this time, John the Baptist answers in terms of an Old Testament prophecy, verse 23. Uh, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now that's a very interesting answer. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of background to help you understand it. Uh, Go back and rewind 800 years before Jesus. And we're in the time of the prophet Isaiah. And at that point, uh, God was very angry with his people. Uh, They had been unfaithful to him. Uh, Israel had forsaken him. And as a result, God declares his judgment on them. God says to them, right, you're going to be conquered. Uh, Your enemies are going to be victorious over you, and they will drag you away into exile. But fortunately for them, that was not the only component of God's message through Isaiah to the people of his day. God also promised, I will restore you. After the exile, 
I will restore you. God says, I will bring you back to the land. And more than that, it was, he promised that he himself would bring them back to an eternal promised land. It's in Isaiah chapter 40, you can read it for yourself. God says that he himself will come and it is he who will save his people and bring them eternally home. Before he does so, in that prophecy, God says he is going to send a messenger, that is a voice, to prepare the way for the king who will come. Uh, the messenger will announce the coming of God to save his people. And John is saying, John the Baptist is saying, I am that voice. I am that messenger promised 800 years earlier. In other words, I am the one preparing the way for God who will come to save his people and to take them eternally home. In that little discussion that John has with this religious delegation, there are two things we learn. Uh, we learn who John is. He is the voice of one calling in the desert. But you see, we also then learn something of who Jesus is. And of course, the point is obvious. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God who has come to take his people eternally home, to their heavenly home. Jesus is it. He is the King. He is God who's come to save his people. So that's the first thing we learn about Jesus here uh, in this dialogue of John with the authorities. Uh, the second thing we learn is this. Uh, Jesus, this king, this promised king, he's actually here amongst the people, and indeed he is far greater than John the Baptist. So, uh, John the Baptist, uh, they have this discussion, uh, the religious authorities talk to him, uh, and this leads then to another question which they pose to him. They say to John, why on earth then are you baptizing if you're not the king or the Elijah or the, the promised prophet, why are you baptizing? Uh, John's answer is a little uh, oblique. Uh, he turns it in an opportunity to bear witness to the hidden Messiah. Uh, John's baptism, of course, is designed to prepare people for him, the king. Look at verse 24. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, that is John, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John's statement here, it's very startling. He's preparing the way for, for God, the king, who will come to save his people. But then he says... He is actually here. He is among you already, and yet you do not recognize him. Uh, his stature, his status, his power, they are immense. Uh, compared to him, John says, I am an absolute nobody. He is here, and he is greater. And then John gives us a third glimpse of Jesus' greatness. John says, he is the sin-cleansing, sacrificial Lamb of God. 
The next day, we see that John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he says, this is the one. But when he sees Jesus and he talks about him, he uses very interesting language, uh, language which we wouldn't expect. Uh, John uses Old Testament language, uh, language from the temple and the sacrificial system. John says, Jesus is like a sacrificial lamb. Jesus, the Lord who is coming to save his people, he is the sacrificial lamb. He will take away sin by himself being sacrificed. Verse 29, look again. Uh, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, you see what John is doing in his gospel? Uh, I'm talking now about the author, John. Uh, he's laying the groundwork for the climax of his gospel, uh, the death of Jesus. The author, John, is saying, Jesus is the sin-cleansing, sacrificial Lamb of God. That is a very dramatic statement to be making about Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist also reaffirms that Jesus is indeed very great. Uh, even though Jesus is younger than John, John says, actually, he came before me. And of course, we know that from the prologue last week, we know that's because Jesus is the eternal word made flesh. Look at verse 30. Uh, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then we go on to see yet another aspect of Jesus' greatness in verses 31 to 34. Then we see he is the Son of God who gives God's Spirit. He's the Son of God who actually gives and grants God's Spirit to people. Uh, John then tells us how he recognized Jesus. Uh, he says the Holy Spirit came down onto Jesus. Uh, we're not actually told specifically how that happened in John's Gospel, but we know from the other synoptic Gospels that it was at the time of Jesus' baptism. And for John... The Baptist, that was the sign. That was the way that he knew that this man, Jesus, was indeed the Son of God, that he was the promised king of God's kingdom from the line of David. And John the Baptist also says that Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's a reference to a prophecy made by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years earlier. And again, this points to Jesus being God who has come to save his people and to bring them eternally home. Verse 32. Uh, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So, uh, we're seeing here something of the greatness of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is 
the Lord. He is the promised king, promised by the prophets over hundreds of years prior to his physical arrival on earth. Jesus is God who has come to earth to save his people. But how will he save them? By dying as a sacrificial lamb to cleanse people of their sins, to take their sin away. And why will he do that? So that he can bring people ultimately to their heavenly home. So that people can be with God, their creator and Lord, forever. That's quite a message, isn't it? That is quite a message. Uh, No wonder John the Baptist can't stop talking about Jesus. No wonder John was willing to dedicate his life to preparing the way for Jesus. And no wonder to quote the introduction, John came as a witness to Jesus so that through him all men might believe. Uh, No wonder John the Baptist spent his whole life WOM marketing for the Lord Jesus, that word of mouth testimony. So firstly, we've seen then the content of the testimony, the greatness of Jesus. But now in the second half of the passage, we see something else. Uh, From verse 35 onwards, we see the impact of this testimony. And indeed, the impact is that people follow Jesus. So uh, the next day, Uh, John is at it again, and this time he's talking about Jesus to two of his disciples. And they hear John's testimony, and they are very impressed. And what do they do? They follow Jesus. They go to his house, and they spend a day with him. Look again at verse 35. Uh, The next day, uh, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, turning around, Jesus said, saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Now, John, the author, tells us of who one of these disciples is. Uh, I suspect that's because probably it's John himself who is the other disciple. But one of the disciples is called a man named Andrew. And Andrew then spends some time with Jesus. And when he does so, he is very impressed. And he himself, Andrew, then soon forms his own opinion about Jesus. Uh, He comes to the conclusion that, yes, Jesus is the promised king. And Andrew is so impressed with Jesus that he can't keep it to himself. And so he goes and he does a bit of his own WOM marketing. He tells others about Jesus. Indeed, he tells his brother Simon. Simon comes and meets Jesus. And Jesus calls him in Aramaic Cephas, which means rock. Look again at verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. Uh, The next day, 
uh, Jesus calls another disciple. Uh, his name is Philip. Uh, Philip is also impressed with Jesus. And soon he comes to the view that Jesus is, indeed, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, Philip is so impressed that he does a bit of his own WOM, his word-of-mouth testimony. Uh, he goes and tells his friend Nathaniel. Look again at verse 43. Uh, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Uh, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Uh, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Uh, now, Nathanael isn't initially very impressed. Uh, he doesn't think that a man from the slum town of Nazareth can be anyone special. Uh, but Philip perseveres in his warm. So Nathanael eventually comes to meet Jesus. And it's an interesting meeting. Uh, Jesus shows that he knows all about Nathanael before they even met. Uh, Jesus shows that he knows Nathanael's character. He knows that he is a true Israelite. Uh, Jesus also says that he saw him before they met underneath the fig tree. And Nathanael, he's impressed. And finally, he believes for himself, Jesus is the promised king. Uh, verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Uh, but Jesus says to him, actually, you may be impressed now, but you're going to see more impressive things than this. Uh, Jesus then refers to a famous passage from the book of Genesis. Uh, there we see Jacob, who has a dream. Uh, and in his dream, he sees a stairway connecting heaven and earth. And we see, he saw on the stairway the angels of God uh, bringing messages to God from, uh, from God to mankind, from heaven to earth. And Jesus now picks up on that dream, but he puts a new twist to it. He says, actually, it is I myself who am who are the stairway. He said, I am the connection now between heaven and earth. I bring God's message to you. At verse 50. Uh, Jesus said to Nathanael, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angel of, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, it's just like and it resonates well with what we saw in the prologue last week, the introductory section. Uh, Jesus is God himself. He has come from the Father's side to make God known. So in Jesus, we don't just have a prophet. We don't just have an angel. We have actually God himself bringing God's word to us. Okay, so can you see uh, what is here in this passage as we move on to think about how this applies to us today? Uh, in one sense, uh, this passage is all about one word of mouth marketing, word of mouth testimony. Uh, John the Baptist testifies about Jesus 
so that all men might believe. Uh, He says Jesus is the divine Lord. Uh, He is the one who has come to save his people. He is the one who will grant God's spirit to people. He is the one who will bring people to their eternal home. He says Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. That is John's testimony. That is John's word of mouth testimony. And his testimony has an impact on others. Uh, Firstly, it impacts two of his disciples, Andrew, and as I said, probably the Apostle John himself. We've seen Andrew spends his time with Jesus. He then becomes, comes to believe that Jesus is who the claim is. Jesus is the Christ. And so he then goes to talk to his brother Simon about it. Uh, Jesus also calls Philip, and Philip comes to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he goes to talk to Nathaniel. And in the conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel, we see again that Jesus is this connection between God and man. So let's think about how this should impact us today. Well, I think there are two points of application. Uh, firstly, and undoubtedly, the power of one word of mouth testimony. How did Jesus get his disciples? How did he get his disciples? Uh, if you read um, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke, uh, when you read their accounts, it sounds like a, a very miraculous sort of thing. Uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Jesus just comes up to people, he says, follow me, and suddenly they drop whatever they're doing and they leave their fishing nets or their tax collector's booths and they just follow Jesus there and then. But here in John, uh, we get a bit more of an insight into what had been going on behind the scenes prior to that point. And it's one of the ways that John's gospel beautifully complements the synoptic gospels, uh, providing us with additional background. Uh, You see, that day that Jesus approached Peter in the fishing boat, uh, that wasn't the first time they had met. And likewise, the day that Jesus approached John in the fishing boat, it wasn't the first time that they had met. These men had already had contact with Jesus. And how did they come to know him? through the word of mouth of people they trusted, through the word of John the Baptist, through the word of their brothers, through the word of their friends. And humanly speaking, that is how it works. And you know what, it's been the same throughout history ever since. And it's the same for the majority of people today. The power of word of mouth testimony. That is the way that people normally come to put their trust in Jesus as God's king. Uh, so I ask you the question, uh, do you want your family, friend, uh, members who don't yet know Christ to come to know Christ? Uh, do you want your friends, your neighbors who don't yet know Christ to come to know Christ? What is the best way for that to happen? Now, I'm going to acknowledge that firstly, of course, it is God's work. I'm also going to acknowledge that prayer is vital in the process. I'm also going to acknowledge that God can use any means, not just our own testimony. And I'm also going to admit that, of course, 
we don't just bombard people all the time with Jesus talk. Uh, of course, we wait for when it is opportune to talk to them about the Lord Jesus. And prior to that, we seek to love them and to serve them in whatever way we can, looking ultimately for opportunities to also then share our faith verbally. But the point is this. Humanly speaking, what is the best way for these people to come to a saving faith in Jesus? And the answer is this. It is through word of mouth testimony, uh, through one, the speaking of the gospel, spoken indeed from your mouth, if you're somebody who trusts in Jesus. So you see, I think that Aaron Vered, who wrote that book we talked about in the beginning, I think he's onto something when he says that word of mouth is the most trusted media. It matches up with what we see here in John's Gospel. It matches up with history. And it matches up with many of our own stories here today. So let me ask you, how is your WOM going? Are you, when the opportunity is appropriate, talking to people about Jesus? Now that's the first application from this passage. Uh, the second application, and the second thing that strikes me from this passage is this. Seeing the glory of Jesus inspires us to testify about Jesus. The more we see the glory of Jesus, the more we will be inspired to talk about him to others. It's interesting that in this passage in John's Gospel, uh, we don't see any command to evangelize. Uh, no one is commanding anyone to talk to anyone else about Jesus. Uh, and when you look in the Bible more widely, uh, there are only a few places where we're specifically commanded to tell people about Jesus, or of course we are. Uh, here in this passage, there is no nagging of people to talk about Jesus. Here in this passage, there is no guilting of people. There is no, if you like, shilling. No one is being paid to talk about Jesus. So what should motivate Christians to talk to people about Jesus? What will motivate people to talk to their friends, to their family members, who they have a deep desire for them to come to know Lord Jesus Christ? And I think it is, the motivation will come from them being in some way amazed in a deeper way as to who Jesus truly is. If you like, seeing to a greater degree his true glory, his true identity, and his true role. So, are we sometimes reluctant to talk to people about Jesus? Uh, do we sometimes remain silent on the occasions when we should speak? Uh, why would that be? Uh, there might be lots of reasons, but as I look at this passage, I wonder, is it because we fail to have a deepening appreciation for the glory of Jesus? Is our evangelism driven by guilt or by glory? Because it shouldn't be driven by guilt. It should be a push factor where we see the glory of Jesus and we just cannot keep it within. And so there we have, in a sense, a little bit of a litmus test. Uh, maybe it's a way in which we can determine to what extent do we really appreciate the greatness of who Jesus is. And the litmus test is this. To 
what degree are we giving word of mouth testimony to him? What is our womb like? If it is weak or if it is as absent, maybe that shows that we need a deeper appreciation of who Jesus truly is and his glory. And indeed, that is my prayer for us this year, as I mentioned last week. As we're going to work through this Gospel of John, my prayer is that we will each have this deepening appreciation for the glory of Jesus. He is the divine Lord. He's the Lamb of God. He's the eternal King. He is the stairway back to heaven. My prayer is that we will be in some way have a, a deeper sense of wonder about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we do that and we have that deepening sense of wonder, it will then move us to indeed share that wonder with others. Not through a sense of guilt, but through a sense of increased amazement in our hearts. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you for the glory of who he truly is. And in various ways, that glory was glimpsed during his time on earth. And we pray that as we study John's gospel, uh, we would see it more clearly and it would change our hearts and our lives and indeed our testimonies. And we pray this to your glory. Amen. Uh, Shortly, we are going to...